That was Krista Tippett. She is a slow, deep thinker. She's a, she's a graduate of seminary, and uh, she is an excellent interviewer. She has a podcast called On Being, and some of my favorite interviews are by Krista Tippett. She has an interview of the poet John O'Donohue, who is no longer living, and that's a great one to listen to. She also has an interview of uh, Bishop Desmond Tutu that is great to listen to. Today, the scripture passage that I have for you is about, uh, it's from Genesis, and it's about God's dream and the dreamer who heard God's dream. The book of Genesis is 50 chapters long. The last half of the book tells the stories of Jacob. Jacob the grabber, Jacob the deceiver, the wrestler, and his family. And Jacob's name, you will remember, is changed to Israel by a mysterious wrestler. And so we are to see ourselves as a family of Jacob, and we are to see ourselves in the stories of his family. From chapter 37 on, from chapters 37 through 50, we get these stories of Israel's family, Israel's children, uh, 14 chapters worth. He has a favorite son, and the favorite son is named Joseph. Joseph is a dreamer, but Bible translator Robert Alter reminds, Joseph is no mouthpiece of piety. Joseph is, he's so spoiled and entitled that he becomes kind of like a reality television star of the Bible. <laughs> His wisdom is so on point that his short interpretations of the world, you could call them dreams, but you might also this day call them TikToks, whatever you call them. They go viral. They practically go viral. It's almost true. You'll have to read these chapters for yourself. But Joseph does become Pharaoh's right-hand man. He works his way up, which is amazing for a Semitic nomad to be Pharaoh's right-hand man. But Joseph doesn't just walk up to the palace with his resume and knock on the door. There's a secret that is hidden deep in the family closet, a scandalous tale of how Joseph's older brothers got so tired of him that they attacked him, that they stripped him of his designer duds, and they hid him in an empty cistern. And then on a whim, the brothers decide to sell him to some slave traders who then take him to Egypt. Many years go by where the family assumes that Joseph is dead, but he's working his way up the ladder, working his way up the ladder of the Egyptian empire. And when the family, when Israel's family falls on hard times, he sends his sons to Egypt in search of food. They take their request for food to the governor of the land, who is this strangely emotional Egyptian official, the dreamer himself, who knows exactly to whom he's speaking. And that's where this story picks up in Genesis chapter 45 with verse 3. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father really still alive? His brothers couldn't respond because they were terrified before him. Joseph said to his brothers, come closer to me, and they moved closer. He said, I'm your brother Joseph, the one that you sold to Egypt. 
Now, don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves that you sold me here. Actually, God sent me before you to save lives. We've already had two years of famine in the land, and there are five years left without planting or harvesting. God sent me before you to make sure you'd survive and to rescue your lives in this amazing way. You didn't send me here. It was God who made me a father to Pharaoh, master of his entire household, and ruler of the whole land of Egypt. Hurry, go back to your father. Tell him this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me master of all of Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You may live in the land of Goshen so that you will be near me, your children, your grandchildren, your flocks, your herds, everyone who is with you. I will support you there. He kissed all of his brothers and wept, embracing them. And after that, his brothers were finally able to talk to him. This is a story of God for us, for the people of God. Thanks be to God. This summer, I was traveling. I was on a road trip, and I was in New Mexico browsing in a gift shop through their many Catholic icons, and I came across a saint who was near to me but instantly dear to my heart, St. Eugene. St. Eugene de Mazenade, the patron saint of dysfunctional families. Did you know? I did not know. But I bought a magnet with St. Eugene on it, and I put it on the altar in my house, which is the refrigerator, and that's where an icon belongs. St. Eugene, the patron saint of dysfunctional families. Charles Joseph Eugene de Mazenade was born to a wealthy family of minor nobility in France. In 1790, when he was eight years old, his family fled their home because of the French Revolution. They were minor nobility, and so they were under attack, and they left all their possessions behind. Eugene's father was a politician in France, but that didn't get him very far in Italy. <laughs> in Italy, he became a tradesman, and he was an unsuccessful tradesman. The family lived in poverty in Italy, and the parents separated. When Eugene was 20 years old, his mother decided that it would be best if he would marry a rich French heiress. And so she returned home seeking a future daughter-in-law with money and also to reclaim her possessions if she could. Eugene went with her, but instead of courting an heiress, he decided instead to become a priest. He was deeply affected by the disastrous situation of the church in France. The church was a disaster in France. It had been ridiculed and attacked and decimated by the revolution. His ministry developed a rather interesting focus, caring for those that the broken structures of the church had just simply overlooked. So he was caring for the prisoners, he was caring for the servants, he was caring for the young people of France, and he taught and he preached in their language. Other priests in France decided that they wanted to join him, and so the movement grew, and he went directly to the Pope to request that his group be recognized by the church. They were named by the Pope the Oblates, the Oblates of Mary Immaculate. 
sound familiar? It should if you live in San Antonio. We have some. Eugene insisted on two priorities for the Oblates. Deep spiritual uh, formation and also close community life. The Catholic Church teaches that the flourishing of his ministry was born in his suffering. And when he died at age 79 on his deathbed, he is reported to have said to the priests who surrounded him, Among yourselves, charity, charity, charity. Be good to one another, right? The stories of both St. Eugene and Joseph in Genesis are born in dysfunction, they are born in suffering. But neither story makes a home there. Each one pivots to well-being. And I wondered this week, how does this happen? How does it happen that a story that begins in suffering can end in well-being? Some would say that the pivot happens with forgiveness. Alan Hilton, who is a pastor and author, he was at one time a professor at Yale. Now he is the founder of the House United Movement, and he lives and ministers in Austin, wrote this. He wrote, reconciliation always hinges on forgiveness. The wronged one is transformed from critic of the world as it is to co-creator with God of a brand new world. Critic of the world as it is to co-creator with God. I love that because I can pretty easily find myself at home criticizing the world around me as it is. But you know, it's a difficult role to play. It's exhausting. And I'd much rather be open to God's creative work around me. When practicing forgiveness, we are given the gift of putting the pitfalls behind us and opening ourselves to a new future. It's a change of focus, and it is a change of focus that only the victim can make for themselves. You know, this would be a quite different and disturbing story if the brothers appeared before Joseph saying to him, don't be angry, Joseph, God did this. God did this to you, put you here in Egypt to save lives. That'd be different. But when Joseph says it, and Joseph does say it three times in the verses that I read to you, in verse 5, in verse 7, and in verse 8 of chapter 45, Joseph says this, you didn't do this, God did this. When Joseph says it, things are different. The future opens up, and the creative work of God is visible. You know, only the injured can change the focus of the story. But once the focus shifts, and many times that focus shifts in the very act of forgiveness, it is as though life is set free. I was reminded this week of the power of a point of focus when I read an article about Benjamin Franklin's diary and the account of his morning routine. This may be the very first account of a morning routine that we have. It's from the 1700s. And here is Benjamin Franklin's morning routine. Rise, wash, address powerful goodness. Rise, 
wash, and address powerful goodness. You know, that's a routine that I could get into. It's a routine that I could easily practice to rise, to wash, and to pay attention to put my focus on powerful goodness instead of the limits of the day that's, in, that's ahead of me. In the book, The Man Who Wrestled with God, John Sanford wrote, Evil remains evil until our consciousness grows because of it. Then God can use it for good. And I think that both Joseph and St. Eugene would testify to this truth, that evil is evil until our consciousness grows because of it, and then it can be used for good. I would testify to that truth as well. God doesn't will evil. God does not will harm. And it's true that too many in our world suffer. But my suffering comes to an end when I grow. My suffering comes to an end when I go beyond it, be it here on earth or in death. You know, in death, I trust I trust that my consciousness will grow beyond whatever suffering entraps me at that time. When you consider the whole of the Joseph saga, and there it's a long saga, there are 14 chapters, God is really mentioned very infrequently in those 14 chapters. But uh, God, there's an awful lot of talk of God coming out of Joseph's mouth in chapter 45. And so what is that about? Where is God in this saga? We are told early on that God is with Joseph. From the very beginning of this story, we hear of dreams. And dreams in the Bible are very different from most, from many, most, all of the dreams that I have, which are just my suppressed thoughts being processed at night In the Bible, the dream is one of the ways that God communicates with God's people. Biblical scholar Walter Brueggemann wrote about these chapters in Genesis that God is hidden in the form of a dream in the saga. That's where God resides. God resides in the dream. The dream in Genesis is the unsettling work of God upon which everything else depends. Without the dream, there is no story of Joseph. And also without the dream, there's no trouble and there's no conflict. There's no suffering. Three things I would have you remember as you consider your own dreams versus biblical dreams or versus God's dream. The first is that God's dream persists. It shows up throughout this story in Genesis. The dream is there in the very beginning when we are first introduced to Joseph, and it goes throughout this story. So if you've ever had a child, a conversation with a child where the child brings up the same topic over and over and over again, that's what God's dream is like. God's dream perseveres. The second and equally important quality is that God's dream is elusive. It's elusive to any one of us. One person doesn't completely understand or comprehend God's dream all on their own. One person messes it up, mishandles it, misinterprets it. Joseph is evidence of this. In Joseph, we see that it's just second nature to utilize God's dream for our own glory 
We're wrong to retell Joseph's story with him as a great hero, and some preachers will do that. Joseph is truly and really a mess. <laughs> Joseph is spoiled. Joseph is entitled. The dysfunction of the family and the suffering of the family. Joseph is a mess, and yet Joseph is the dreamer. Krista Tippett said in the video that we watched earlier, it takes all of us to interpret, to understand God's dream. And I believe that that's the truth about interpreting God's dream. We really and truly need one another because we each get just a piece. We need one another to see what it is that God desires. Last of all, God's dream is always about life. And I know this to be a biblical truth. From the very first chapter of Genesis in the beginning when life is being created to chapter 22, the last chapter of the Bible in Revelation where the river of life is flowing, God's dream is about life. God's dream is about freedom. It's about well-being. God's dream is not about empire. It's not about power over. It's not about control. It's not about selfish prosperity or ambition. It's life. It's life for all of us, every single one of us. And it persists. It perseveres. I wonder if you know the name Adam Grant. Adam Grant wrote an article last year in 2021 that went viral on the topic of languishing. Languishing is the middle ground in life between depression and flourishing. Languishing, he wrote, can be described with one-syllable words like blah and meh and eh. That's languishing. It's aimlessness and joylessness. It's missing well-being. And I'd venture to say that at some point in the last couple of years, we've all experienced languishing. He says, Grant says that most every response to his article was just simply, yep, me too. I know what it is to languish. I know what languishing is about. But there was one response, one exception from an artist named Austin who said, I'm not languishing. I recognize some of the symptoms that you're describing, but I'm not languishing. I'm dormant. I'm dormant like a volcano or a plant in the dead of winter. It's ridiculous to expect when the world is standing still that I should flourish. You don't try to thrive in the dead of winter, but you wait for spring. I'm dormant. And quiet, powerful things are happening inside of me. I don't know whether or not Austin is a Christian. I don't know who that guy is. But I can tell you, I can tell you that the people who follow the way of the Christ know what it is to be dormant. We do. We know what it is to wait for the arrival of new life. We know what it is to wait for spring because it always comes. It always, always, always comes. Life persists. Would you pray with me? Lord God, you are ruler of the universe. You are author of all life. And you continue to create in our world. 
and in our very days. You dream flourishing, you dream well-being for every single one of us. By the power of your Holy Spirit, would you allow us to practice forgiveness, leaving behind the dysfunction and the pain and the pitfalls of our past and opening us up to the future? Would you loosen our tight grip on control and place in our hands the tools of compassion and cooperation? We want to understand your dream, and we ask these things in the name of Jesus the Christ, who always leads us in life-giving ways. Amen.